Now we're in the phase of living with COVID, often erroneously referred to as post-COVID, we can start to reflect on how many of the changes we've experienced over the past two years are likely to be permanent. Like the population shift to the regions, will working from home continue to be the norm or will the pendulum swing? In either scenario, have we seen a structural shift in the requirements for housing in this country? And what about immigration? Will we resume pre-COVID levels? And if so, where will these people live? How far behind are our policymakers in anticipating future housing demand and supply? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxdale's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the service of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. We're joined today by demographer Simon Kustamaka, who we've had on the podcast before, and each time we've enjoyed his de- his data-driven perspective on demographic, consumer, and social trends. Simon is the co-founder with Bernard Salt of the demographic. Oh, fuck, I'm really fucking <laughs> up with the demographics group at so the right, moment. It's our second one today, Simon. Sorry. <laughs> I know my mouse got all fat. Simon is the co-founder with Bernard Salt of the Demographics Group and we're delighted he's joined us again today to talk about the future and how it's shaping up for housing in this country. Welcome back, Simon. It's always good to see you. Uh, it's great to be back. Simon, always love our chats, mate. I mean, it's 2022. I think we chatted back in 2020. It was our last time and maybe even a couple of years before that was the first time. Um, I mean, in 2022, what's going through your brain, right? So what's what's your sort of big sort of theme? What's some, you know, some, I guess, global trends that are popping up and things that you're investigating? You know, what's, what's going on in Simon's brain well, at the moment? the big thing that's going on here is that I'm constantly finding myself reading up on geopolitics, on global trade issues, because everything that uh, we care about in Australia, of course, does not happen in a vacuum. This happens in the context of broad international trends and the roll down mm. of global free trade you know we're rolling this back there will not be as easily uh, delivered goods to australia it means just essentially everything that we import into the country will become more expensive and remember that we largely import uh, high-tech goods all our cars our machineries uh, even if you talk about things that are being built in australia that are manufactured in australia all the equipment, all the machinery that we use in the manufacturing process come from overseas. So we heavily rely on free trade. But that said, we're rolling this back mm. internationally speaking. So everything that you put into your business will become more expensive in the next couple of years. So I'm doing the rounds on the speaking circuit and the consulting circuit to telling businesses to prepare for the rising costs. So do you think this is a fallout of the, the Brexit, a fallout of Trump? Do you think it's uh, just, an, a, a, I guess, a, the years down the line, then you've got the things with Russia, obviously, and the COVID and supply chain issues. But do you think these trends started years ago if you were, if you sort of were on your oh, way Oh, absolutely. Back? That started years and years ago. So the Americans who, of course, are a big military power and who guarantee global free trade by keeping the oceans safe and by being a military presence wherever you look, um, they essentially allowed us to do this free trade. They increasingly have no appetite anymore to be the global policeman. So they roll that back. That means you have more regionalized power. That means global free trade slows down a bit. That happened uh, under Trump. That happens under Biden. There is no change there and America will not change their mind, period. So we're moving into this. And on top of this, you have a war in, uh, in, in Ukraine, which really makes... You know, it's another slowdown of this. On, on top of this, there's COVID, which means uh, the the ports yeah. in China uh, that we heavily rely on for our mm-hmm. imports, uh, they are closed or they operate under, under certain limitations. So things are not uh, going well from an import perspective for Australia at the moment. Well, we've obviously set ourselves up for this too, in the sense that we have closed down a lot of our manufacturing over the last few decades. So, you know, I, I guess was there nobody paying attention to any headwinds here? Uh, 
I would say we are actually really, really lucky that we closed car manufacturing a couple of years before COVID hit, for example. Imagine if we had still a vibrant car industry in, in Australia. They couldn't have possibly operated because most of the machinery, uh, most of the parts of the cars were not produced in Australia to begin with. They were imported. So we would I have th- dropped out of those. But I thought we actually had quite a lot of componentry manufacturing yeah. in Australia and they were the sort of the knock-on industries oh, that all, all were affected when we shut down the plant. Exactly. But that's what the global, that's the beauty or the, the terror of the global free trade system is that you can produce 95% of whatever in the yeah. country. And if there is a slowdown of just one small part of the whole process, the system cracks. So we were actually preparing mm. ourselves, again, dumb luck, we didn't do anything to deserve it, uh, for this eventuality by closing the manufacturing sector beforehand. Oh, so that was a good thing. A wish- <laughs> so you think it's a bit wishful thinking, Simon, that um, you know, there's obviously an inflation outbreak around the world, um, you know, that these supply chain issues are just all temporary and, you know, imports are going to get cheaper and... Um, you know, inflation is going to get under under control very quickly once we sort of get over this COVID world and maybe this Russia war sort of sorts itself out. I don't know, but you know what I mean? Do you think that's wishful thinking? Do you think we are going to see trade get really tougher? You know, imports are going to get more expensive uh, and this is going to be a real problem over the next decade. Yeah, so, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds because I'm, you know, I'm reading both perspectives. I'm reading the pro-globalist perspective. You know, that's the World Economic Forum perspective of what can we do in order to uh, continue trade as much as possible. And I do see that there's a lot of appetite there. I do see that the population around the world increasingly thinks in a global, in a globalized way um, that the individual humans see borders as less of an issue. So that's what makes me mm. positive about, you know, continuing this uh, trade. But then I'm also reading all the big major geopolitical thinkers and they put me into a bit more uh, cautious mindset because I'm, for example, one of the people who does not think that China will be a major superpower. I think China stands in front of a demographic and economic collapse in the next decade or two, um, which then, you know, drives the biggest demand uh, market that we have uh, down. So that's a, that's a problem. So I don't think that we can just bet on continuation of pre-COVID free trade in a mm. couple of years. I, I wouldn't think so. What about our desirability for uh, moving to Australia and, you know, the uh, education coming back and, and things like that? What are your sort of thoughts around have you shifted to thinking it's going to be more than what we had prior to COVID? Do you think Australia's got out of COVID and has got a good reputation? Um, do you think we actually managed that well? I mean, what, what's your thoughts on 2022? Uh, first and foremost, I must say that I think the world will view Australia in a very positive way how we manage COVID because the world will only look at two major figures. They will look at the death rate per million residents and we are doing extremely well with this measure. I think by now you were around 50 times more likely to die of COVID in Europe than in Australia. So that's a huge success. US is even worse. Um, So that's wonderful. Then you will look at the vaccination rate as an indicator of how prepared and willing a country will be to to face a potential new pandemic. And we are also doing extremely well in this measure. So from that perspective, people will just say Australia is a wonderful place. Then who is coming to Australia? Well, big chunk of them, uh, of, of the migrants are international students. They will want to continue to come because the appetite for an English speaking, high quality education remains. Even if China is slowing down economically, we will still see the increasing size of the middle class for another two decades or so in China. So that means the new middle class will want to invest into their kids' future. They will send them overseas to study. Why not go to Australia? Australia is currently uh, hurting itself a bit by not handing out a clear pathway to citizenship. It's very complicated. It's unsure what you need to do and whether you will be able to get a citizenship once you invest into Australia. That leads some international students to choose Canada over um, over us simply because Canada has a clearly uh, demarcated pathway. And that's something that we need. I'm not saying we need to 
you know, take everyone, but I'm saying we need to make it very clear and obvious. You need to have this uh, level of language skills, this yeah. qualification, blah, blah, blah. And then you get citizenship within that time frame. That will ensure us to win the brain drain because we need to mm. rem remember that um, we might at the moment still think a bit critically about migration. There might be too many. The world will not think this way very soon. The world will start shrinking within 30 years. That means that all of a sudden, the whole world will be like Japan, aging, shrinking uh, workforces. So there will be a global competition for talent. Um, we're seeing this now with a skills shortage in Australia, that this is already beginning, that the narrative about migration all of a sudden is very positive. It was much more negative uh, yeah. in the past. And I'm saying this as somebody who writes columns um, that uses uh, that use words like migration a lot. And so I get uh, comments uh, in the in the online media um, that tell me what people think. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. So do you think that the, um, I mean, we've handled COVID well, but we didn't really treat our foreign uh, guests, I guess, um, mm. very well. And we, um, you know, I think that we did, you know, lockdown more than anyway. I mean, you, you're living in Melbourne, so you experienced that, etc. So do you, do you think that those things were short term, people have forgotten about those, and they're just going to focus on those two simple things, the death rate and vaccination rate. And, and you know, Australia is still a beautiful country to live and it's still got great universities. So let's send our kids that way, um, you know, encourage our kids to go to Australia. Oh. Exactly. And really the whole brand that Melbourne in particular had for a short period of time of being the world's longest, the world's yep. worst lockdown or whatever, that's way past now because Shanghai, um, they well overtook mm. us here in Melbourne. Mm. So the global okay. awareness isn't all that much. You can only say one place that was bad. And now everything that wasn't as bad as uh, Shanghai will look fairly good in the global comparison. Plus, I don't think it will measure too much in the decision-making of, of people when, when they move here. And so do you think that, you know, you then mentioned that the, do you think the government uh, is going to change the narrative and then go all in on migration? Because if you think that's really our ticket, right? I mean, if the, the world's shrinking, no point trying to solve that problem in 30 years' time when there's a global competition for talent. Um, maybe we should be getting ahead now while we've still got that desirability. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is of paramount importance. If you want to position Australia for the next 50, for the next 100 years, you need to become a country that is considered to be the envy of the world. You want to make sure that particularly the globally mobile workforce wants mm. to go to Australia. They can choose where they, wherever they want to live. And why do you come to a place? Because it is safe physical safety, safety of property, um, a democracy. These are all really good things. Then you have a bit of nice weather, nice climate, a nice lifestyle and an affordable lifestyle so that you earn good money and it's all, it's all well and good. We're currently risking making housing so unaffordable that mm. other places win out. Um, Good news is that Canada, probably the biggest competition, and New Zealand, um, biggest competition in those lifestyle countries, they are terribly expensive as well. So this disadvantage isn't as uh, dramatic as it should be. Isn't that a byproduct then of being a lifestyle country? Um, the house prices, I don't think so. I, I wrote a couple of columns so? about this, that <laughs> the, the major issue of high house prices here is supply. Um we could easily drive house prices down if we doubled and tripled down on adding more housing supply. And we're not doing this. The, the supply that but, we add year on year is a bit uh, small. Do you think so this is all, you go. Well, this is quite interesting because the thing is that, like, yes, you could drive it pricing down. We don't want to drive prices down, really, do we? Because more people own property than don't own property, and um, and I don't want values to plummet through the you know through the floor absolutely, mm. and I don't think anyone else who does own a property does. But making it accessible because affordability isn't just about people buying property; it's also about people being able to access basically a secure roof over their head. So you've got low income people that are that are struggling to find accommodation. We've got re a massive problem in regional areas. We've been hearing so many stories about displacement of established communities and, and established, you know, residents yeah. of, of regional areas. So the supply side has to tackle, has to be 
even if the governments did tackle supply, they've got to build it where they it is needed. Yeah. Not lots and lots of more one or two bedroom apartments in Brisbane City or in Melbourne City or Sydney City even, you know. And so I, I don't know, is this outside your lane or not? But, I mean, what is the problem there? Why are we encouraging developers and why are they, in fact, building stock in places where supposedly people don't want to live? It doesn't actually make sense. Lots in this question. So the first, <laughs> uh, the first answer here is um, we need housing stock where it's needed. So we need to think about where will people live. And there's the short-term question of settlements patterns changed during COVID. We've seen all of a sudden the what was used to be the fastest growing areas, the inner cities, emptying out, losing population. Um, not much happened in the middle suburbs. They lost a bit of population. And then the outer suburbs, the urban fringe grew. And regional Australia, all of a sudden, was the fastest growth area in the country. Bizarre, if you compare it to the previous years. But quite mm. logical, if you think about it. The population that we lost in the inner city and in the middle suburbs, the first group were temporary residents. These were international students, skilled migrants that were renting. So their visas ran out. Um, they decided, you know, if my uni is locked down, why stay here? Why not go home uh, to wherever my parents live? So that's happened. That lost, uh, that made us lose people in the inner city. Also, um, the, the young people of all of Australia that would have usually moved to the inner city of Melbourne, they didn't come for two years because the city was locked down. Um, so that's the COVID-related changes. On top of this, you had an even bigger factor in play. That is that the biggest generation in Australia, the millennials, just by sheer demographic dumb luck, happened to go into the family formation stage of the life cycle as the pandemic hit. So that means they, the millennials live in one or two bedroom dwellings with their partner in the inner suburbs. And now they add 1.7 kids to the family. Um, they need a Zoom room because all of a sudden we work from home. That means they go to wherever they can afford a three or four bedroom house. It's not the inner city. The stock isn't available and the little stock that is available is unaffordable. In middle Australia, in the middle suburbs, there is no housing stock available because the baby boomers that live in those houses as empty nesters, they're not selling. They're not downsizing. The downsizing narrative is a bit over-exaggerated in Australia yep. because Aussies only downsize once the family home becomes a physical hazard to yep. be living in, a nuisance to manage. <laughs> and the baby boomers are still too young and too healthy in the 2030s. So they will only start doing this in the 2030s. Um, so therefore, the millennials had to jump the middle suburbs and they moved to the urban fringe. They moved to regional Australia. And this comes, this is a long and roundabout way to answering your question about the uh, unaffordable issues in regional Australia. Because all of a sudden you have a couple of millennial families, young families moving into the regions and they drive house prices to the, uh, through the roof like crazy because these are tiny, tiny housing markets. Mm -hmm. And you throw yeah. in a couple of more people and the existing stock is empty. Oh, it's, it's not empty, mm. it's full. So there's no more vacancies. Um, and so what happens? Well, prices go up, rental costs go up. Uh, it's no problem for the inner city new arrivals because they are on intercity, in, inner city salaries. They can afford mm. it. The people who lose out are the renters, therefore probably the poor people of regional Australia, mm. and the young people who wanted to move out and wanted to stay regionally, but why bother doing this if there's no stock mm. available? So this regional issue should kind of, sort of, fix itself over time <laughs> as uh, the local governments, you know, catch on, make land available, and yeah. as soon as the local developers build enough housing. But that said, those local developers of a relatively small area, they're used to adding a certain low level of stock every mm -hmm. year, and they now need to work at triple the rate in yeah. a time of a massive skills shortage. Uh, so how are they doing and this? Supply. Exactly. Oh, yeah. exactly. And supply, yeah. supply shortage, supply costs. Yeah. So mm. that's difficult. But over time, that should play itself out because the market should actually learn where housing is needed. And, um, you know, governments should be smart enough to, to rezone and, and whatever. So that should yeah. work itself out in the long run. Do you think, though, Simon, we're going to ultimately, you know, you say that one of the things that will make it uh, cheaper housing is more yeah. supply, which absolutely, if we build it in the right places, but there's really a capacity problem. You know, there's only so many 
houses, apartments, townhouses. We've only got that many developers. There's actually less developers now because a lot of them are, you know, struggling, right? Mm. Um, we've got a global talent shortage of all the people who build these things, you know, all the different trades. You know, people can't afford to upgrade their home. Um, we have these conversations pretty much every day. Yeah. Um, I'd love to upgrade, but, you know, to do that, that jump is so big, um, I'm going to renovate. You know, we've got a massive backlog of, you know, year, you know, houses that are getting older that need to get renovated, right? And um, people are going to renovate them because they need more space, whether it's for home offices or whether it's for more kids, et cetera. So do you think there's just we're going to be constrained because we're going to have a capacity problem that we're never going to be able to build enough supply to tip the balance, you know, to have too much supply which will cause prices because on the other side we've got a demographic which is a demand problem, you know. We've got a very healthy younger population that – you know, the the, gen, uh, the millennials you sort of spoke about are all getting to this sort of family stage and we've got a pretty low home ownership rate in that generation um, that are going to want to, to, to buy. I mean, is it worthwhile us sort of talking through, you know, how I guess internal demographics and how that creates demand for housing, you know, consistently every year, putting migration to the side, we've got a big need for housing over the next, you know, two, three decades. Correct. It's just that simple because the solution to many of those problems that we face in Australia is importing more workers. All of those new workers and international students will live somewhere. So that means housing construction will continue. I've spoken a lot about in the past about the what you just mentioned, Chris, the, the renovation cycle. We are building relatively low quality housing stock in Australia. That means that we constantly need to overhaul the housing stock. <laughs> which is annoying but right now this is uh this is biting us in the bum uh, to be quite uh, quite honest because so we 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 eat up construction workers tradies in the yeah. renovation cycle even though we would better they would better be placed yeah. building new stuff but exactly. i would say there is now a big opportunity for innovation um, you know, are we really doubling down on prefab houses? Because this way we could ha build houses faster at a higher volume if mm. it's if it's being available. You know, if you can put it, uh, if you can crane it into the right spot, all of those things. So there is there mm. is market opportunities opening up mm. for these switched on companies that are doing this already that can scale up for new entrants. God knows we have the demand uh, there. Well, another thing that's really slowed down the building, certainly on the eastern seaboard, has been the rain. It's very difficult to build a house and it's pissing down rain unless it's at lock-up stage and you do all the internals. Yeah. So prefab solved a lot of that problem because all the stuff is built in a factory with a roof on it. Um, what about 3D printed houses? That's, you know, we, every now and then you read a media story about that. Have you actually seen any evidence uh, of what? Have I've, you seen? I've just seen the media stories, the YouTube videos, yeah. and I'm always thinking, is this actually the smart way of doing one? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm completely down with prefab. It makes perfect yeah. sense to me. Um, you know, you, you just build the box and then you have a couple of people doing the, the internals easy. Bolt it together. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that makes sense. But the 3D printed house... I, I don't I don't see the immediate appeal other than it's an oh, interesting kind of like technology, but that's about so it. So, do you have any details around sort of, um, you know, because I think it's it, demographics, the more that you sort of learn about it, the more that you find it interesting, the more you get deeper you can go. And I, I think one of the things that sort of in my picture of, you know, property and, you know, in my mind what drives prices is, dem is demographics. And then, you know, it's the 20-year-old that's going to uni right now that, you know, they maybe in 10 years' time they meet someone and they save hard in their 20s and then they, you know, want to get a house together, et cetera. And so, you know, that internal uh, demographics we've got in Australia and, you know, how big that is in terms of a demand in the future and then also how their migration then consistently tops up that sort of uh, migrate because we import people that are younger, right, that are sort of pre-housing. You know, how does that all sort of work, I guess? Well, so if you look at the status quo, that's terribly boring. So let's compare the status quo as of now with a decade ahead. So we do know uh, pretty precisely the Australian population into the future because usually yeah. we, we dictate how many people will come into the country. And as you mentioned, we know the age of migrants. So that allows us to think about the future. So anything in the population over the age of 50 sees a big boom because we are growing old. In percentage terms, the age segment that will grow the most are people in their early to mid-70s over the next decade. That's baby boomers retiring mm. uh, in, in, in retirement. So those folks 
big market, if you can tap into this market, that's probably right around then when they might think about downsizing. Late. Yeah, but you mean you make while we're there though, you make a really interesting point around that because that's been my observation is that I mean even the government's encouraging this. They don't really want people to go to HK home. They'll do modifications to their home to keep them in there, whether it's mm. ramps or lifts um, that are much cheaper than they are they were in the past. Yep. And um, so you know people just want to stay in the home, not on, for the tax reasons like their pension and their tax free growth, and their kids are in their ear to stay at the home because they know that that's a better spot for their inheritance than in their bank account. Um, so, you know, do you find that that downsizer thing would really trickle and it could take a long, long time because we're living and we're staying healthier than for, than a lot longer than we used to in the past? Uh, ab absolutely. I would always think about downsizing at scale happening maybe when you're 80. So I would always mm. look at, you know, just the population in a very simple, uh, simple way. Who is 80 or older? Mm. You know, and then how will this segment change over time? And the truth is that the plus 80 market is growing by something like 40% over the next decade. So that's, there will <laughs> be more downsizing because it kind of demands it. Yeah? But well, I guess you've got to sort of look at what are the options for a downsizer. You know, if they're not that appealing, you, you, you're not going to sell your house, are you? So it's, um, you know, our nursing homes aren't that appealing. Let's face it; nobody wants to go in one before they have to. And 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 look, I know my mum literally turns eighty two days after <laughs> we record this, and Dad's turning eighty eight soon. They're still alive, and they're still in the home I grew up in. Yeah. Despite many efforts to get them out of it, um, they just haven't. Nothing has seemed to be enticing enough for them to do it. Um, and you know, and. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, I know a lot that are really proactive with their downsizing. And so the soon as the kids are out of the home, that's it, bang, sold, downsize into an apartment, you know, change their location so they're yep. close to the city where they're going to the theatre more often or whatever it is. You know, they've actually, it's, it's, it's something they've embraced and grabbed with both hands and raced towards. Um, and there seems to be this huge gap between the two groups. Am I am I making that up, or as a demographer, are you uh, experiencing this? No, that's that's certainly true. And you you do see here how just lifestyle preferences play into this because mm. there is this simple idea: I'm rich, oh, I'm we are both retired now. Do we want to change things up? Do we want to enter a new stage of the life cycle? Uh, do we, you know, it's, it's the last hurrah, if you will. It's the last <laughs> chance to sell your house in the middle suburbs of uh, Melbourne, of Brisbane, of Sydney, and then move. You know, we always want to live uh, at the sea, whatever. And and then you can uh, you can afford to do so. You do this, you change your lifestyle. Um, or people are just set in their ways and say, mm. you know, this is where my friends are. My kids aren't living too far away. So why bother? This is, uh, I, I like it here. And I would say, maybe it's the yeah, I maybe it's say, that window though, isn't it? It's that window where it's that mm -hmm. sixty-five to seventy-five, where you know they still got the ability to travel and you know up and out, Adam sort of mentality. We can embrace a change. Maybe both still partners are alive, but you know when it gets to those so that seventy eighties, then it's about safety and being access close to the kids and the grandkids and, and making those big lifestyle moves. You know, harder to get networks and be out and about and socialising, etc. So. Do you know, do you see that, you know, if you haven't downsized by a certain age, then your chance of downsizing must drop? Um, That's the uh, voluntary downsizing then drops. Uh, yeah. Because you will hear, if, if you look at a chart that just shows the, the share of the population with a disability, uh, over time, once you reach 80, almost everyone has a disability of sorts. Yeah. And yeah. then eventually the family home becomes just a nightmare to manage and you, you, you have to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, I think Actually, another stat I, I saw years ago was like, I think if your two partners get to 65, you know, there's a 50% chance that one of those would make it to sometime somewhere in the 90s. Um, and so, you know, like it, it's so, you know, if, if you've got a couple at 65, it's, you know, there's 50% chance that, you know, they're going to potentially still live in that house for 30 years. It's not like they're um, you know, going to downsize because even if one dies, then the you know the other one wants to stay there for the emotional reasons, etc. So, yeah. I don't. Know, I think it's a really big thing this downsizing. A lot of people look at the property market and go, "All these baby boomers are going to sell out of their houses and buy apartments." And the reality is, a lot of them won't, and will just yeah. stay in their houses for as long as possible. Exactly, and that also, if you look, if you fast forward into the housing market, you know, let's say the downsizing um, because peak baby boomer death will be. 2037 so that's 15 years away um so then <laughs> just 
It's yeah. such an interesting term. Uh, it sounds, Peak baby boomer yeah, death. Yeah, everything's, everything's desensitized in the demographer world. It's, it's just death and birth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We, we sometimes call it a peak wealth transfer. That's yeah, yeah. That's even, uh, <laughs> Inheritance. Um, yeah. I love it. But so what you, peak wealth transfer, yep. <laughs> what, what you see then uh, is in the mid-30s, you do see people dying off at scale. And this is only looking at baby boomer women, by the way, because they tend to outlive their partners. So mm. then the housing stock of the baby boomers will enter the market at high pace. So that's still over a decade away. So I wouldn't bet on, um, you know, any kind of massive downsizing because downsizing um, in that sense is really cynical because they downsize to the graveyard, to, to, to be quite well, frank. Well, that's the ultimate in downsizing, mm. isn't it? But um I really don't need much space anymore. Um, but in the meantime, who's to say that when they down, they're, they're still, I mean, unless they're going to a nursing home, they're still participating in the property market. So they're just freeing up one property to take up another. They're mm. not necessarily yeah. freeing up supply. And the, the other thing too, in terms of my earlier sort of, you know, characterizations of the two types of um, downsides is I forgot about the, the, the sea change generation. You know, the people that sold up and went to Foster or yeah. went down to, you know, the Shoalhaven or whatever. Um, and, and those sleepy and, and often I looked at those coastal towns outside that sort of two-hour commute to the CBDs as uh, and you look at the age makeup of, of um, those areas is yeah. quite, you know, heavily, yeah. you know, skewed towards retirees. I imagine those towns have changed quite significant through this COVID migration. Uh, so are they as desirable for these um, <laughs> these baby boomers anymore? Yeah, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, that's a nice... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice little edge to the question there. Um, so what we've seen during the pandemic is that all of a sudden, young workers with a knowledge job, a laptop-based job, could on the housing market increasingly behave like retirees, meaning they were not shackled to the CBD anymore. They could choose the place of residence based on lifestyle factors. And then more people moved to the beach, more people moved to southeast Queensland. Um, essentially, now the millennials copied the housing behavior of the retirees, yeah. which is <laughs> which is quite interesting. Of course, yeah. also, you mentioned the two-hour uh, extreme commutable distance. Um, any lifestyle destination within the two hours saw massive booms. And outside of this, you saw relatively slower boom, if you will. Mm. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. But it's, it's interesting, I've noticed, um, so we've had a lot of clients that were thinking about doing it pre-COVID, right? They would talk yeah. about it and then they go, oh, no, I can't make it happen. You know, it's too much, you know, with the commute and all our friends. And you have to really be fighting the river, right? The salmon going the other way to have done it prior to COVID. But then it completely flipped the other way. You know, if clients were thinking about it, they just went for it, you yeah. know, because it was like that opportunity with work. And if we don't do it now, we never will. But we're actually seeing a second shift now is that actually their parents and their brothers and sisters um, are following the kids a little bit. You know, it's like before as the parents would move there and, the yeah. you know, the kids would never go and visit them and they'd have to always go back to the city to see the kids anyway. But <laughs> we're seeing the parents just following the kids. Are you noticing any of that sort of second or third waves, I guess, yeah. where, you know, friends are following now and, and family are following because they um, – yeah, they wanted to sort of see that they were settled there first. Yeah, we tried doing this, uh, so we call it tag-along grandparents. We've done this with our old census data, 2016 census data. And you can see this, that grandparents follow suit. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a real thing and it makes sense. Um, but it will only happen um, once the grandparents are both retired. Yeah. And... You know, so that's that's the big uh, qualifier here. We, we see the same with volunteering or ch uh, child care, uh, child um, minding um, data is that grandparents under the age of 65 do nothing for the kids. 
in, t- in terms of taking care of them because they're still in the workforce themselves. Once people hit 65, you see this big surge of grandparents looking after their kids, mm-hmm. uh, their grandkids, sorry. Um, so that, that trend is visible. It is quite clear. And I would expect this to be probably a bit you'd see more of this because simply you have more young people moving to lifestyle destinations. Yes. Yeah. Um, the big qualifier here though, is that the way that people retire changed over time. Um, back in the day on Friday, you got the gold watch and you were congratulated for 40 years of, uh, service to the firm. And then it was golf course, uh, uh for a, for <laughs> decades on end. Um, by now people slowly slide into retirement. You know, you, you you scale back your hours three days per week. Maybe you take two months off in the middle of the year to do a Rhine River cruise in Europe. You do all these kind of things. Um, but what this means is that you still have the need to stay connected yeah. to the CBD for longer. So you will then not become a tag-along grandparent because you still want to be, uh, you know, I still go to the office occasionally. I still um, consulting occasionally. So why would I change things? And now you have mm. uh, the big baby boomer generation at a higher uh, percentage in jobs that allow for these kind of uh, lifestyle choices. You know, they are more knowledge workers. Uh, they are more office-based than previous generations. Yeah, that, but the sort of COVID world is more remote work, right? And then that does suit people looking to, you know, uh, a couple of days here, et cetera, more yeah. that outsourcing contracting becomes much more of a, you know, instead you've got to be in the office five days. Do you see that, that you know, a much more flexible, uh, you know, you hire what you need rather than you just hire a full-time person is going to be the way that we move towards? Uh that would make sense. So definitely we need more flexibility in all aspects. And that's something that really needs to be branded into everybody's brains these days. Um, that also means you need more flexible systems. One of the re- reasons why, you know, the, the stereotypical cliche boss uh, hates the idea of people working remotely is that they have no idea how to manage a a remote workforce that is, you know, geographically dispersed, that is in different time zones, that is uh, culturally, generationally more diverse, sexually uh, more diverse. It's crazy. Uh, So you need to manage all of this stuff. And there are people out there trying to build systems that allow you to do all of this. All the... um, all the DAOs, the decentralized organizations, all this Web 3.0 stuff touches on this. They are trying to find new organizational structures. Um, and you need to be flexible because the young people, if they get to work in a way that they prefer at a different company, why the hell would they choose your company? And I think that's just the demands of the workers driving the way that work is offered to the market. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? It's real chicken and the egg because, of course, now that, you know, supposedly lockdowns are a thing of the past unless there's some new really awful, you know, <laughs> version of uh, COVID. Um, but some organisations are sort of coming out and saying, okay, we, we want our, our workforce back in the office at least for part of the time. And so there might be that sort of pull back to the old ways, you know. The, I, I know that it's often been said and we've often said it that COVID has really accelerated about 10 years worth of change into sort of a two-year period but there will be a pendulum swing back I would imagine in some respects but what you're saying is that that the workforce will determine if you've got a a work shortage a worker shortage then the workforce will determine how flexible employers need to be but we don't have that sort of forced situation when we have to work from home any longer you know what I mean so I guess there'll be could there be a pull that you know in two different directions yeah. there? So we want to make sure that work works. That's the first thing that everybody should put uh, on on their plate. Mm. But um, if workers want to work from home more than the bosses want them to work from home, that's a problem. That's where conflict um, is created. And now that you've granted workers the privilege of working from home, you can't take it away. It's it's called loss aversion. It just means that you are much more likely to hate losing something that was given to you uh, than, you know, not being given it in the first place. So now Mm. that doesn't work anymore. If you work from home, you will want to continue to work from home in whatever uh, suits your your lifestyle and your job. Um, But if you even remove workers and bosses completely and you just look at work, um, 
you'd think, why the hell would we come to yeah. an office all day yeah. long? You would actually want to think at this from the perspective of work. There are certain tasks in your in your week. Some of those tasks are quiet thinking tasks. You're writing a report, mm. you're programming. This is best done in the peace and quiet of your home, assuming you have a quiet home. Um, yeah. And so yeah. those tasks are best done at home. And the other parts, the collaborative, the creative parts um, of your job, they are best done in the office. So why wouldn't you try to structure as much as you can your weeks according to your needs? You know, I'm doing quiet tasks. I'm, I'm bunching them into my Monday and Tuesday, and I'm yeah. doing Wednesday to Friday in the office, something like this. And it will change from worker to worker. It will look different from week to week because tasks change a, ro uh, a lot. And certain kind of roles benefit from being in the office more. Um, and if you take this to the next step, you could actually kill the traditional office um, and you just create open collaborative spaces in the CBD. And yeah. one case study of a company that has already done this is um, Dropbox, the online file storage company in, in Silicon Valley. They killed their offices. They now have a thing they call Dropbox Studios. And you are only, so they're virtual first company. You work from home by default and you only go into the office to... Um, to collaborate, to, uh, co to be collaborative, uh, to be creative, to do all those team kind of works. So therefore, the office looks much more, um, you know, it's a, like an open kitchen space, lots of yeah. little uh, corporation uh, areas, these kind of things. I mean, it's interesting. I've been um, very much disappointed with, I guess, the things I've been always thinking about and tracking what companies are doing what and listening to asking clients what's happening with your work from home and, you know, can you – and uh, getting very mixed um, conversations, actually. I think – some companies are really forcing people back to the office. It's really mandated. These are the days you can't, if, even if you want to work from home on Wednesdays, that's not possible. You're in the yeah. office, um, you know, very inflexible. And the workers are sometimes just conforming and just saying, okay, well, that's still pretty good. I get one or two days at home. Um, mm -hmm. Some are getting the complete, the drop boxes. And um, even some of the big tech companies are just on a phone with a, the, a Google today. And, you know, some of the, they have to get back to the office and things like that. And yeah. Apple have even come out and, and said it. So I think maybe we're in this transition though, whether work, even though there's a global talent shortfall, all the companies are figuring out what still works for them and some are going to shift back to old ways a lot more than the drop boxes of the world. But it's, it's going to take a while for people's confidence to, to leave the companies that aren't doing offering enough flexibility, right? Because people don't just all of a sudden get up and, and quit their job. I know there's this talk of great resignation, etc. <laughs> yeah. But I don't really see that. I still feel like everyone's very much sitting on their hands and um, yeah, people are, uh, are, if they're getting headhunted and offered 50% more salary, yeah, they'll go. But a lot of people are, are still apprehensive to, to switching jobs if they're not offering flexibility, for example. It's yeah. still very early days. Oh, and I think that's a beautiful observation there is that we in Australia, we are more stubborn, if you will. Why would you, and more loyal, why would you change jobs just willy-nilly? Uh, if, if, if your job is fine, why would you mm. change it? You know, and plus there was this thing, we've just been through a pandemic together with your colleagues, with your bosses. Um, and of course, there was JobKeeper, which meant that you actually had a stable income uh, in, in many jobs. So that means you actually had a good pandemic. So you don't feel resentful against the bosses. So why change then? You know, you want to repay um with your loyalty in, yeah, in okay. a sense. I think that's deeply Australian uh, in, in nature. It's interesting. I had a client some years ago, this before COVID, and she was telling me how she she had quite a senior role, one of the big uh, consulting firms, and they had a you know a, a desk free policy or whatever they call it, so everyone was hot desking, yeah. and you had a cubicle and a tray or something. And but she said that you know as as a new person entering the organisation, she needed to. Um, you know, she needed to work out who her points contact were throughout the organisation in order to get things done. You know, it's really difficult to get to know people when you never actually know where they sit. There's no actual area for finance and, you know, there, there's no sort of particular spot you go to sort of just to to find those people. She said it was really, really destabilising. Um, and, and then she said she reflected on the, the you know, they had sort of lunch and learn type um type yep. uh, activities and, and uh, consultations and whatever. And they were a lot of them are around the mental health um, impacts of not having a desk. <laughs> so, yep. you know, like be, not knowing where you belonged effect effectively. And she said it's bizarre. They've actually had to go and bring the psychologists in to help people overcome the, the uncertainty mm. and the instability of not actually knowing where you belonged and where to go. 
And I wonder whether there's, you know, do people just underestimate how really how, and that, so that's a bit extreme, but that's probably potentially more like the environments now, you know, post COVID, I don't want to say post COVID, post lockdown, where we, we have this sort of hybrid model where you, you go and join a new environment, new company. How do you actually start establishing those? How do you knock on the door of somebody's Zoom office? You know, it's like, do uh, you know, it's it would be challenging and stressful. Well, it already is. So we've seen in the two years of the pandemic that um, the job sector that we could grow the most were highly skilled workers. You know, we grew this market by 12%, which is massive. Skill level one jobs, right. university wow. educated jobs grew by 12% in two years, massive increase. Um, but most of those jobs had some element of remote work to them. And it is highly awkward at the very least to onboard people remotely. Mm. Um, that's a challenge that once again, the organizational structures need to actually um, sort this out over time. And we will, we will sort this out. And there is the idea that you do need to be together occasionally in order to build um, cohesion within a team. And apparently, mm. so this is research that I read from the US, one day per week, the whole team together is enough. Mm. Mm. Um, so go. you can actually do it with relatively few points of contact. Um, the thing that worries me is the is learning in the organization. How do you yeah. make sure that the young people, you know, if you're in your, if you're 35 and older, don't worry about it <laughs> all that much. <laughs> uh, but in your early years of the career, uh, you really learn a lot from anyone who's older than you. It's simple mm. stuff like, how do I do this thing in Excel? How do I do my timesheet? And these little questions, um, they are best asked, you know, you just ask whoever sits next to you and they'll answer the question. And so you build little relationships this way and you don't call somebody for these things. You just mm. then actually read through the instruction manual or whatever. Um, <laughs> I reckon technology is going to be a big part. So, for example, with training, um, you know, some of the staff members, you know, we do three-way calls, right? And they yeah. just jump on mute in the background and you can do that with Zoom meetings, right? You could say, look, I'm running this important meeting. You'd get a lot out of it. You can just sit in the background on mute. You don't have to have your video on. Um, and it's a lot less obtrusive, you know, to the person, you know, and they're not sort of sitting there, you know, with their pen writing notes yeah. and, you know, et cetera. And so I, I think, you know, it's maybe solutions like that will be, you know, a great enabler to solve these problems where um, it's actually technology is a better solution than sitting in on the meeting or going to the coffee and being a bit awkward while you watch your boss yeah. negotiate um, a big transaction, et cetera. So do yeah. you think that's going to help, I guess? It absolutely does help. So the idea, though, here is that you guys were proactive in establishing something like this, and that's mm. what is uh, is needed now from the worker, mm. uh, from the employers. Mm. You need to think about what do we actually want. You don't want workers back in the office. That's stupid. What's the actual outcome that you want, and how can you get it? And if you've if you've done it all, uh, and being together is the one thing that's needed, then that's what's needed, and then you can demand it from your workers. That's fine then. But if you just do it because you're too bloody lazy to think about new ways of doing work, then you probably will struggle to find staff uh, in a skill squeeze. Simon, do you <laughs> notice any, um, I mean, there's uh, one of the things, you know, people with property sometimes they say, oh, look, you know, we're not getting wage increases and um, how and property's just going up a bigger multiple of income, right? Salaries haven't gone up in 30 years yeah. and property's gone up, you know, tenfold, etc. right? You know, those yeah. sort of things. What are you sort of seeing though is, you know, there are people getting salary increases, they're getting promotions, they're, um, maybe they're not getting their annual CPI increase, but they're, they're getting salary increases plus they're getting wage rises and bonuses, et cetera, but it's only a cohort. What portion of the sort of workers are, are sort of getting most of the benefits when, you know, the typical sort of stereo, you know, people are on minimal wages aren't getting it, for example? It's, uh, it's it's quite sad. It's the higher up you are, the more likely you are to negotiate a better salary, the more likely mm. you are to actually be, uh, you know, that efforts are being put into retaining you because you are harder to replace by definition. Um, so if you read all those articles that said the virus doesn't discriminate, um, you know, I always... Uh, was very mm. pleased reading this because this sounds like a terribly postmodern virus, you know, who uh, treats everyone <laughs> the same. 
<laughs> socialist, uh, but, socialist virus. <laughs> but that's really not the case. So we've seen yeah. jobs on the top grow. The further down the skill ladder you go, the more likely you were to lose your job, the more likely you were to be exposed to the virus through your job, the less likely you were to be vaccinated. So you had this, uh, this massive disadvantage. And so we are further driving Australia apart into rich and poor throughout the pandemic, which is quite dramatic. And it's a catastrophe from a social cohesion perspective. Yeah, and on that, I mean, social unrest. I mean, you look at basically revolutions around the world over the centuries have all been caused fundamentally because of this massive growing divide um, between those that have and those that don't. Do you see that if Australia is still on this trajectory that we're, we're, we're at risk of that? Uh, so I wouldn't see any kind of major unrests in our future, but we're moving into the direction of having an economy that looks like South Africa, that looks like Brazil, that looks like America, where we take away jobs from the middle class. So we shrink the middle class and we add high income jobs and we add low income jobs. So that means that the high income earners, the low income earners, they don't have the glue of the middle class. They yeah. segregate uh, spatially. So they live in different corners of the city. That means their kids go to different schools. So where do those people meet? You know, they don't go mm. to church anymore, uh, atheist country. Um, so that means, you know, you don't even have the experience of being one under God in the same pew um, once a week. So you don't have that. That really leaves the biggest, most important social glue in Australia, sports. So you must not underestimate spectator sports, your rugby, your footy, your cricket as an element that both rich and poor workers enjoy and consume. Um, so therefore, I'm also always claiming that the biggest catastrophe that's happening to sports is pay TV that locks certain groups out of consuming sports. Mm. So it locks, it takes social glue away. Um, so I'm always mm. happy to see sports on free TV, free to air TV. Um, so that's my little spiel about sports. Uh, yeah, I mean, football is, football is a religion. Um, as a very sad <laughs> Liverpool fan this week, uh, <laughs> probably should have won the league. Uh, but, yeah, I'll, I'll follow that till I die. But, I mean, I guess the um, another thing that happened this week was the election, right? Um, uh, and as someone who would find these things interesting, um, what's your sort of observation of, you know, what it really means for Australia? Not so much of what the labour market, you know, labour... Um, you know, party mean in terms of their policies, et cetera. But what's sort of the, the bigger picture that sort of comes out of the results and the independence, et cetera, and, you know, what does that mean for our future? Uh, so what I see in the election is a continuation of a trend that has been going on since 1990. In 1990, 2% of the votes went to parties other than Labour and Liberal, to the third parties. That's mm. number, 1992%. That slowly edged up to 26% bit by bit as of 2019. And now at this election, we hit around 33%. So we, wow. we turbocharged this trend. So thinking about a, um, a two-party system seems a bit ridiculous. Um, if I'm thinking about the Labour Party, you know, the big winner, landslide, uh, election win, these kind of headlines, they are technically true because they won the seats. But overall, the Labour Party has the lowest result ever. Uh, under a third of all votes go to the Labour Party. So it's a terribly low vote, a terribly low outcome for the Labour Party. So nobody at the Labour Party should congratulate themselves for anything. Um, the Labour Party continues to be at structural risk um, as they ever were. Because if I just said it, the middle class is eroding away. The traditional jobs that were supporting the Labour uh, Party are continued to be taken away from the workforce in Australia. So Labour might well continue to decline even more. And we've seen this in Germany, where Labour was around 40% for a long time. And they're now in some, <laughs> in some polls, they are 12, 13%. So Labour of any party is at the biggest risk of being completely um, eliminated in the next couple of decades. Which is, that's sort of interesting because my observation is that you look at the Liberal Party and you certainly look at the balance of Liberals to Nationals now, the Nationals have a greater proportion, um, their share of, of that, uh, um, what do you call it, collaboration? Coalition. There's a word for it. 
thank you, coalition. <laughs> That's exactly the word I'm looking for. So their share, their proportion, that coalition is greater. And so, you know, I mean, we're only recording this just up, literally just after the election. We yeah. won't go to where until July. So this we'll we'll know some of the answers to this stuff. But this is all musing. So I look at the 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 votes or the seats that the Liberal Party lost, which are all those the moderate seats, basically where the teal candidates went in and and knocked out those moderate um, politicians. Wouldn't you say the Liberal Party is more at risk because they're left with the sort of the the right wing part of the party there's not a lot of moderates left and then if the nationals do decide to go even further right you know the actual the tippet well the traditional base of the liberal party has got nowhere to go so does that part does is that party at its existential crisis as well they're also at, at a crisis i don't see them immediately as dramatic as the crisis as, as the labor party because there are mm. structural things in the labor party that don't seem to be fixed. The issue with the Liberal Party is where the hell do they get their voters from? If the Liberals <laughs> had been switched on enough, and I think I might have, what if in your podcast said it before, if they learned the most important lesson for any conservative party across the world to beat the green movement, to beat the progressive, postmodern, pro-environmentalist movement, you need to outgreen the Greens. <laughs> <laughs> the, and now they're calling Queensland Greensland. Can yeah, you believe it? Yeah. So the traditional, the traditional green inner city voter yeah. is rich. They are yeah. financially yeah. speaking, economically speaking, a liberal voter, but they care about the environment. The Liberal Party has done their utmost to create the uh, the independent candidates. They will now, funnily yeah. enough, and that's this existential issue there that you're pointing at, yeah. Veronica, they mm. will now have probably take someone like uh, Dutton as their leader. They will uh, they will listen more to the national uh, uh, wing of the party. So that means mm. they will move further right. They will move yeah. not towards the uh, sustainability movement. Uh, so they further lose the young voters. They will further mm. lose seats uh they will further increase an independent movement, which I actually quite like. That just means parliament becomes more messy. It becomes harder to form policy, but that's not a bad thing. It was always written mm. about that this is a bad thing. You you then actually have more parties into, um, into parliament and you then need to battle these issues out on an intellectual battlefield, which is rather nice. And that's how a democracy is meant to work mm. in the first place. But that said, um, where this will lead to in probably a decade or so, uh, if Germany is an example, is that we will have Liberal and Labour Party reigning together. Because they will mm. both <laughs> shrink away a bit more. They will just mm. have over 50% in three, four elections. And then those two parties will govern together. It worked well in Germany. It might well work here. Um, and then you just have a really strong um, opposition on the right. Um, there will you know, there'll probably be one big right-wing opposition performing around Pauline Palmer, if you will. And then you'll have <laughs> a really strong Green Party uh, on the left, which is further driven left as long as the uh, green parties aren't actively reigning the country as long as they're not actively in con in power they will be moving further left once they mm. are in power they need to become more realistic we've seen this with green parties all over europe and then they will yeah. become moderate they'll move to the center with an environmental touch so you don't <laughs> think that the liberal party will say well it's all good not being say pro climate change etc but then that's what caused us to lose the election so for the next election, we need to go the opposite, right, and win those votes back. So the conscious capitalism music, you just think that uh, it's so ingrained that, you know, that they can't make those radical shifts over short time frames and it'll be just a natural sort of deterioration of the two parties and become more messy and messy and uh, split the votes around. the. You know, that, would be, <laughs> that would be my bet. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, if I was tasked at saving the Liberal Party, I would say you need to strengthen... Um, you know your regional vote. That's the that's the nationals. That's fine. So you you need to cater to that, and you need to cater to the concerns. But from an environmental perspective, you need to move very much uh, to a progressive stance. You can still do have a progressive climate stance and be conservative. That actually goes together really well. Um, and you must have a non a right wing uh, right wing uh, or right of center leader like Dutton. 
that will hurt you in the long run. And you really must, you really must outgreen the greens with climate policy. Yeah. And my yeah. my approach that I put forward in the, in the column is called the Norwegian approach, where Norway, of course, is a country that has tons of oil uh, mm. that they dig out of their uh, out of the ocean and they sell it. And all the income from their oil they put into the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, and this money of this fund is meant to is is build is uh, building green technology, is making um, uh, Norway a carbon neutral, carbon positive yeah. country, and there is no reason we couldn't do a um, we couldn't push a Norwegian approach for to towards mining towards energy mm. in Australia. The problem though here is if I were um, suggesting this Norwegian approach, yeah, mine, uh, drill baby, drill, uh, mine as much as you can and use all this money for environmental good, the greens would fall over backwards. They, they, they would, they, 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 <laughs> they couldn't believe this. Um, but who, who, who could I talk to with this policy? Who would actually bite? A couple of the independent candidates would bite, but that's mm. it. So it's a very small share of government that would find these, this approach attractive. I think it is the most plausible middle of the road um, way of doing things, but there's very little appetite for middle of the road, I assume. Well, it's quite interesting because the whole campaign, I just thought that Labor, you know, it was often uh, the whole policy well, policy for his own was often, uh, it was often accused of being. And I thought after the loss of the 2019 election, I'd be very surprised if Labor came out of the gates with some with lots of really, you know, scary policies. Let's face it, they don't want to lose another unlosable election. Um, and so I would like to think that perhaps we might see what they're really made of. Maybe we can see some interesting stuff. Who knows? But um, I, I'd like to hope that there's a bit more, bit more oomph in them now they're actually uh, going to govern the country than now that they're not trying oh. to win government. Ho anymore. Hopefully so, because at the moment things are going terribly for the Labour Party. You need to remember this. They're in structurally, a structural decline for four or five decades, and they're continuing down the same path. They're going to be eliminated as a party sooner or later. They have mm. now the chance of redoing this. We created an Australia where we have so many, they're called skillable four and five workers, so many people working in the gig economy where they're being paid by the gig, by the kilometer, by the hour. Um, if you capture this market and you say, how do we drag those jobs into the middle class by creating more opportunities in the middle class and by automating mm -hmm. as many low paid, low income jobs as possible. So automation is your friend. We must remember this. There is no need in keeping any of those low paid jobs um, in the market. We want to kill as many of those jobs, the jobs, not the workers as possible. Um, so if this is the approach that the Labour Party goes, a completely pro-tech, pro-automation, pro-AI party that says we do whatever we can to push those low-income workers into the middle class, that would be the right way. And all the while keep a pro-climate change narrative because the young people and also increasingly, as we've seen, the parents of the young people. So it was yeah. Gen X parents, the parents of teenagers mm that were very much impacted by the teenagers. So the the big environmental Friday for Futures, Greta Thunberg way of thinking actually fed through the teenage brains into their parents. Um, so there you go. Uh, all of a sudden. <laughs> my, You know, my daughter, she's 15, she actually did a, a speech at school, which was why parents should listen to their kids about environmental matters, right? And that surprised me because I was trying to brainstorm topics for this with her yeah. and and she gave up on me and went to her father and, <laughs> uh, and her and her father came up with this as a topic, which is pretty incredible because he doesn't really yeah. think too much about this stuff. Yeah. And I'm yeah. so proud. And he said to me, you know, he said he actually got an insight into her politics and mm. and and. I thought that was fantastic. You know, like way better than if I got involved. He wouldn't have had any, you know, he wouldn't have had any input. So, yeah. or, or potentially never heard it. She still hasn't. She still hasn't told me the speech. By the way, she, I keep asking her to, yeah. to give it to me. But um, the other thing I think too, which did come to end, it's gone flying out of my brain. We we'll have to edit this bit out. Um, so I've got I was something ask if you, you want. Oh yeah, go for it. There yeah, was something so, else I wanted to ask um, you. Simon, so, mean, obviously we've had the election. The other big thing that um, having a government level. Last year, which was a bit of a farce because we all did it from home on a Tuesday night, was the census. Um, what should I'd love to get you on? Uh, I know that's your favourite day of the year when that data comes <laughs> out. Um, when should we sort of get you back on to sort of get some insights into that stuff? Because I think it doesn't come out till June to August this year. Um, but when are you going to have some interesting things to talk about? Yeah, so 28 June, uh, 10 a.m. That census. Uh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> 
What do you actually get though? Do you just get the, the big macro data? Do you get some special access doing what um, you do or do you just get what the, the average punter gets? No, the good thing is that there is no uh, stupid uh, lockup thing this time around. All you get is data loaded up into the ABS tool called Table Builder, which allows you to combine the census data in whatever way you want. Um, so that's the real big, exciting release. Um, and that happens in late June. So, you know, give me a couple of weeks and uh, <laughs> yeah. after, after this. And yeah. then we really know more about the country. And the beautiful yeah. thing why I get excited about the census is that I think many Australians don't understand how awesome the census is. We run a census every five years and we ask 65 questions. You can combine those and, you know, cross-tabulate them in endless ways. It's, it's beautiful. The Americans run a census every 10 years and they ask 13 questions. They have they have so much fewer stuff that they can do with their data. Um, so that's quite wonderful. We are really blessed in Australia with wonderful demographic data. So my job, being a demographer, being a data guy here is so much easier than it would be in the US or than it would be in Europe, where no country really is holding a real census, where it's all done via surveys, which is beautifully, uh, you know, it's, it's good enough and it's kind of cheap, but you can't cross-tabulate your population data with your um, workforce data, with your social data. We can do all of this. We know so much about the Australian population. And therefore, of course, you know, this is very self-serving narrative because everybody should listen to my my little spiel on these things. Uh, <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, you can run a business in a much more targeted way in Australia than you can anywhere in Europe or America. Is that why you moved here? No, <laughs> I, I, w I wish I could be uh, saying that, but I just by coincidence discovered how wonderful your census is after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Simon. It's always great to have another chat and we'll, um, we'll reach out sometime in July just to have another episode with you because um, that census sounds very exciting to me as well. Uh, you'll have the most excited uh, demographer on the podcast by then. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.